Roadshow, also known as Bounce, also known as Gold, also known as Wise Guys, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by John Weidman, opened off-Broadway November 18, 2008 at the Public Theater. Conceived by Sondheim in the early 1950s after his reading excerpts from a soon-to-be-published book titled The Legendary Meisners by Alva Johnson, the project evolved over the course of decades, starting in earnest with a reading in 1997. Based on actual people and incidents, it tells the story of brothers Addison and Wilson Meisner's adventures across America during the Klondike Gold Rush to the Florida real estate boom of the 1920s. The story of the play and the evolution of the production are each extraordinarily complex and equally as interesting. Wasting your time listening to them, that was the waste. Willie, I, I, look, what was your crime? You were a gem. They were strictly paced. Willie, listen to me. They're... So it got rough. Why the guilt? Look at the stuff that you built. So you got burned. Look what you've learned. You know what I learned, Willie? I learned that the only thing wrong with my life was you, you conniving son of a bitch. I'm on my way. Look, Mama, on my own. I lost my way. That was just an episode. I'm on my way. Off to worlds I've never known. I'm looking for my own. We may just be the best thing that has happened to us, kiddo partner. Another moment like this may not happen to us, partner lover. When all is said and done, I have to agree. The time is now, the place is here, this is the chance to open up a new frontier, and if there ever was a time to pioneer, the time is now! With us today is multi-award-winning actor Deanna Donegan, whose roles nationally include appearances in Sunday in the Park with George, A Little Night Music, and her Tony Award-winning performance as Violet Weston in Broadway's August Osage County, as well as appearing in the world premiere of Bounce at the Goodman Theater in 2003. Chris Jones, chief theater critic and culture columnist for the Chicago Tribune. He also serves as Broadway critic for the New York Daily News, as well as a critic for WBBM-TV Channel 2. Recipient of numerous accolades, including the George G. Nathan Award, he is the author of Bigger, Brighter, Louder, 150 Years of Chicago Theater, as well as Rise Up, Broadway and American Society, From Angels in America to Hamilton. And multi-award-winning composer, lyricist, and actor Michael Mahler, whose compositions include The Secret of My Success, Miracle, October Sky, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Hero, Newt Rockne All-American, and Painted Alice, in addition to contributing additional lyrics to the 2017 Broadway revival of Miss Saigon. For the 2014 Chicago premiere of Roadshow, Michael received a Jeff Award nomination for his contribution as music director. Welcome everyone to the roundtable. Thank now, you for having us, Michael. Hi everyone. Um, I liked. Now I will. I will confess more than any of the Sondheim shows that that we've done uh, so far. This is the one I've had to do the most research on. Loving everything I've been able to to dig into. Uh, look, I made a hat. Of course, uh, the book Sondheim's book is invaluable for this. But my my gosh, what what a story. Uh, of, of the journey of this. And I like to start at the very beginnings for each of us personally. When did the show or some iteration of the show uh, first come into your life? For me personally, it was Bounce, which I saw, I believe, on opening night at the Goodman Theater. And, uh, you know, we'll never forget the excitement of, of sitting there and being, you know, it was my first time to discover a, a Sondheim show in that uh, moment of its gestation and to get mm. an incredibly and wonderfully rousing overture, which you didn't hear much of uh, a lot of those as of late. Yes, overtures. What for each of you was your first encounter with this piece? Deanna. 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> my first encounter was when I got a call from Bob Mason asking me to audition for it because I didn't know anything about it. I'd never, I'd never, I hadn't been following. So uh, I'd been, I'd had a very busy couple of years and I couldn't believe it when I heard that on the phone. Uh, and I was so excited. That was in February, the pre preparations, the first auditions, vocalizing first and auditioning, uh, callbacks were supposed to be on April 7th and Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim were flying in to watch the auditions. Well, you can imagine a bunch of terrified actors. Um, and there was a snowstorm yeah. and they did not get here. Uh. So we vocalized, we sang the song. Uh, in my case, it was Mama's song. And, uh, and we read a couple of scenes and they sent the tape off. Mm -hmm. So it, my first exposure to the music was just hearing Tom Murray play the piano of, of uh, Mama's song, Isn't He Something, mm -hmm. which I immediately fell in love with. I adored the song mm -hmm. and uh, he helped me with it to, to uh, learn it and be prepared. But the first, I, I want to say the first time I think I ever really experienced the show was at the Zitzprog. Mm -hmm. When the orchestra was brought in and all of the actors and the chorus and the principals were brought in, in the Goodman rehearsal room. And it was the first time that music had ever been done that way right. because the, an orchestra had never played that music with the voices and I cried mm -hmm. through the whole thing and snuck out the back and sobbed in the lobby afterward. It was, some, I was absolutely uh, ecstatic, yeah. ecstatic. There, those moments you go, I can't believe I'm here, right? Exactly. There they are. Exactly. Chris exactly. and Michael, when did no, you? Cool. I have to confess, I, I came to it uh, my first time cold as well. I, I was in college when they tried bounce out here in Chicago so I I should have gone to see it I, I didn't make it there um, but yeah when uh, when when Gary Griffin asked me to music direct the production at Chicago Shakespeare I didn't really know the show um, but I knew I wanted to work on a Sondheim show and I knew I wanted to work with Gary and uh, I did my research and and I, I same as Deanna I fell in love pretty quickly it's um I drank the Kool-Aid if you will <laughs> um, but yeah it's it's um it was it was really exciting to sort of not only listen to it and hear all the different versions, but our our task uh, for our production was we wanted to orchestrate it for the cast. So instead of having the experience that you had, Deanna, with with getting to hear the big orchestrations, we sort of had to make them ourselves. So we had a, a workshop where we got everyone in the cast and and got all the instruments that they played and all sorts of different things and and started to see how we could realize sometimes score you know in our own way ourselves. And that was that was incredibly rewarding and it was kind of uh it, it was cool to sort of learn the score that way from the inside out mm -hmm. right chris well uh i <laughs> one of the funner parts of my job over these last uh um years has been uh watching shows you know in different incarnations and i think this one I saw more incarnations of almost any other show in my life. I saw the original show at the Goodman. Uh, then I went to the New York Public Theater. I saw that version. Then I saw a third version. And then finally I saw a, a fourth version. Uh, so I actually saw it, I saw it four times. So I watched it change tremendously drastically across that, across that amount of time. And, you know, when it first opened at the Goodman, that was a, you know, it was perceived mostly as a failure. I think it's fair to say, if you look at the critical reaction, um, a promising failure maybe, but it's certainly nobody, um, you know, nobody jumped around and said, here's the next great musical. And then over time, I think it just got, it got better and better and better. And I think that the show came to be, I came to understand the show better myself, I think. Um, and I think it's it's illuminating of Sondheim in a way that no other show is. 
um, mm. me anyway. And um, I think it's an enormously important show to him. If you look, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Michael, you know, his books, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, the, the look I made a hat and the, the, the sort of the books that deal with his shows, which is basically his authorized take on every show, you might say. And if you look at all the shows in those books, the one that he spends the most time on is this. Yeah. And you wouldn't think that, right? It's, There's nearly, a lot half, it's nearly half the book. Like I just looked, it's like 120 pages. Yeah. So, I mean, that tells you that this one, I, I think it either bedeviled him the most or it beguiled him the most. Mm-hmm. Or, but it, there's something, there was, and I, when I spoke to him, he's talked about this he, the, in the public event that we did. Um, this show is, for me, the most revealing about him. And, mm-hmm. and I think my view of it, and I'm not saying this just because we're talking about it, my view of it is that in the future, this will be seen as that, the, the most revealing show about the greatest living uh, you know, writer, writer, songwriter, writer, lyricist, and composer of Broadway history. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing, I mean, digging into all of that history that, that you're talking about and his summation of it, of, of the different approaches. Now, you're saying y- your first encounter was, was Bounce. You had not had yeah. any participation. You, you did not see Wise Guys or any of the other readings or anything like that. I didn't see any readings, but Bounce was the first production of it. Um, Yes. And he uh, says, in his reflection, he says, and I'm reading, you know, from his book, he says, Wise Guys was about opportunity and opportunism. Gold, which was the next iteration, was about greed and morality. Bounce, about resilience and reinvention. And Roadshow, about finding your destiny. And, you know, to you, having experienced and um, it's almost all of those things, you know, he's zeroing in, but each, you know, it's almost about all of these things. Well, I I would say it's about himself. (laughs) I I think it's, I I think you look at it, it's, it's him. And because he wrote it as an older person, it reflects, you know, it reflects his sort of his whole life. I mean, for example, I mean, um, the song uh, "You're the Best Thing That Ever Happened to Me," right, which is about love coming late in life, which it did for him around it, during the journey of this show, and I think it's that that's absolutely true. You are the best thing that ever has happened to me. You are. All right, then, one of the best things that's happened to. They say we all find love. I never bought it. I never thought it would happen to me. Who could foresee? You are the goddamnedest thing that has happened to me ever. When did I have this much happiness happen to me? Never. I can't believe my luck and all I can do is be the best thing that's happened to you. So what do you say we just stay home? What do you say we just go out on the boat and get smashed and make love on the beach and stare up at the moon? Holly, you might just be the best thing that has happened to me so far. Of course, not much ever really has happened to me so far. I didn't much like love. I always fought it. I never thought it would happen like this. Give us a kiss. We may just be the best thing that has happened to us. It all, partner. Another moment like this may not happen to us, partner, lover. When all is said and done, I have 
I think you find in Bounds a lot of the same themes that he um, that he wrote about in Merrily We Roll Along, right. which I know Michael yeah. knows very well, and and uh, which is the idea of the stuff that you have to put up with to have a life in the American theater, which God knows we're all aware of right now. And I think mm -hmm. that the Bounds Bounce Two is about that. And I remember writing once, I think something like. It's sort of a meditation on talent, which if you look at um, all of Sondheim's shows, it's, that's a constant theme of them. Like, what is talent, ultimately? You know, are, are there talented people? Are there, uh, uh, that, that sort of question is, is at the heart of all of his shows. And in this show, mm. he sort of says, talent is accumulated experience. You know, that, that, that ultimately we, we end up with a bunch of experiences that we can think of as our talent. But, but that's, I think, you know, what Bounds says. And I think that, yes, okay, it's theoretically about these two guys who are in real estate, hucksters in real estate, but they're really show people. It's a show about show business, I think, and about him and his place in it and the difficulty of having relationships right. in that world. Right. And the comparison, I think, to, to Marilee is, is very well put, except that Marilee was a different story. It wasn't his story. And this one, he's very much drawing, you know, from. Correct. Himself. I think that's right. Deanna, yeah. you know, Chris has obviously interviewed Sondheim a number of times. Michael has had Sondheim come in and, and comment on the, the results of his work. You're the only one of the group who's actually created a show with him. Well, what thank is you that like? For putting it that way. I'm, <laughs> I, I was. Um, a recipient of many, many drafts and many changes of music. I was looking through my score, which I still have, and I actually have music pages pasted together uh, so that I cover the back of one sheet in, in um, handwritten notes mm -hmm. and printing, not in the... Uh, well, the, the way we see it when it's in a book or right. a music book. Right. Uh, he was, he was not, he, he, he wasn't say around it, all you, the time. You can say it. You can <laughs> say it. <You're laughs> no, he wasn't around all the time. But when he was, he wasn't very talkative. <laughs> he would sit in the house and sort of brooding, a brooding figure. Mm -hmm. and um, be mostly by himself unless Hal would go over to talk to him. Mm -hmm. But he was, um, he was very intent on changing things, and we did. We changed so much. The music mm -hmm. kept changing, the staging kept changing, mm -hmm. but that, that's another story. Mm -hmm. But we would get new music, and the the music that changed the most were Boca Raton mm -hmm. and um, this wonderful piece that no longer survives in a form that I really think it, it, it's the masterpiece of the piece, I think. And Raul Esparza agreed with me and he's done a lot of Sondheim. The show's about two brothers who love each other and hate each other, who travel across America, both creating and destroying as they go. It's the very best and the very worst of the American dream represented in a nice long trip from California to Alaska to Florida to New York. And uh, ultimately, it's about the way these two brothers cannot stay away from each other, for good and for bad. So that song comes three songs in in the second act, and it's titled You. But what it was called when we first started out was The Breakers, because that's the name of the hotel where it happened. So um, the, it starts out with all the dowagers and their husbands, and, all, and it, it's, it's, all, it's like the first, the 
first number of the second act of, of Sunday in the Park with George, mm -hmm. when the chorus is all the figures are saying, it's hot up here, it's hot and I'm uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, and the women are saying, I hate hotels. I want a house. Mm -hmm. And the men are saying, and slurping and all. And it goes into Hollis and Addie singing you, but you have this wonderful polyphony of voices of women and their husbands saying, we have a house, I want a house down here. And it's, it's the most brilliant Sondheim uh, creation. And it's de been deconstructed. It no longer exists. That what I have heard on the roadshow recordings is uh, there's no melody, there's no polyphony, there's no fugue going on, which it had in the other. Mm. Um, but back to what Sondheim was like, I have one Sondheim story that on the first night of the preview, I was coming down the stairs in the back of the Goodman with Tom Doherty and Sondheim was ascending and everybody felt like it went pretty well, first preview. And we were going down and we said, we think it went pretty well, don't you? Kind of, you know, and he said, it's always great the first time. It's like losing your virginity. <laughs> and that was that was quintessential Stephen as far as I was concerned I was always scared of him mm -hmm. many of the people make friends with him uh, especially when we went to Washington he had an apartment he would invite people over after the show which made it quite late of course so I I never went it was across the river on the other side but it, he was available if you knew how to approach him, mm -hmm. I just never, I think I never did. Hal was very accessible and very friendly and John Weidman equally so. They were lovely and so if you had any questions, it was, it was best to go through them actually. <laughs> and you'd get the answer. To bring up Hal is an important point, I think with this piece because uh, it went through four three and potentially the influence of four major directors, Sam Mendes on Wise Guys and then Hal Prince um, with a little bit of a, a period of, of time with Eric Schaefer before John Doyle. Um, Mike, when you were approaching the piece at Chicago Shakes, did you interest yourself in, in researching and looking into the, the earlier approaches to it or did you more focus on just the results of what you were being given after the John Doyle production? I, I was certainly mostly focused on on Roadshow but mm -hmm. like yeah it was it was really interesting to sort of look back. Mm -hmm. Hello is he calling? <laughs> He's like I've heard um, <laughs> he heard what Diana said. Yes. <laughs> yeah it was it, it was fascinating to see what what pieces you know brilliant pieces like that 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 never made it and and to me as a writer also like it was really um inspiring to see how rigorous and uh ruthless he was in his rewriting of the show over and over again and uh you think you get to a point in your career where you're Stephen Sondheim and you can you know just put it out there and it's brilliant and mm -hmm. and to see like how hard he works you know it not only shows it, it speaks to him as, a, as an artist but it speaks to how important the story was to him Mm -hmm. And something that stayed with him for a long time. I mean, as I mentioned early on, just sort of in the introduction, he, he came upon the story in the early 50s and even began writing it then. Yeah. And my understanding is that he found out that Irving Berlin had, al had also big gotten the book and begun his own musical adaptation. And he's going, I, you know, I'm, I'm nobody. I mean, it's the early 50s and, and the great Irving Berlin. So he abandoned it for some time. But to think, uh, to Chris's point, that there's something about this story that stuck with him the entirety of his career, even before West Side Story, that right. there was something about this story of, of love between brothers. Brothers, right. And interesting that he didn't have a brother. Well, his brothers were in the theater, I think, you know, I mean, I, I think it, that's, 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 you know, what he was saying. I, I, I also think, you know, the stories about hucksters 
And it's like in the theater, everybody's familiar with hucksters, right? They're always, there's always one step away from the very talented are always hucksters. And so everyone is sort of familiar with these, these characters in, in this business who talk a great game and you never quite know how they've gotten where they've gotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> where are they going to get the money? How they got the money? And then, and you, and then, and then on a, on a, on a, sometimes you start to go, well, they got the money. So who am I to say, you know, that they know what they're doing better than I? And I think anyone who's worked on a Broadway show is sort of aware of that. You know, there is that distinction. And I think that's something, you know, aside from the idea of love and creativity and, and the idea of, um, you know, and the other thing, so Huxter's was, was, I think, one of those issues for him. And the other thing I think is failure. So it, it's like, that's another fascinating thing about the show because they fail. These guys fail and they, and of course, so did Sondheim on any number of occasions, including with the show for a while. But he, you know, ultimately it's about translate, you know, what is failure, but just a step towards success. But you'll never outgrow. We were stuck from hello. It was bound to explode. Don't you see we're the same? That whatever the game, this was always our road. Stop it, Willie, enough. Come on, Eddie, you love me. Come on, say it out loud. And and I, I just think that the metaphor, the metaphor is sort of picaresque story in some ways. They're, they're sort of obscure characters, you might say, and they're sort of, you don't think of them as great vessels for human emotional truths, you know? But he made them so somehow. I, I, it's just kind of remarkable to me. Yeah, but, I love how he has such a way of getting you underneath the skin of really unsavory people. You know, I mean, it flies in the face of conventional showbiz wisdom, right? Where you have to find a main character who everyone can fall in love with and root for right away. And all of his characters, all of his main characters are so awful, you know, kind of across the board. I mean, you were talking about Merrily, where you start the show finding out what a schmuck Frank is. You know, with this, you you start the show, at least in Show, you start with the funeral and you find out what a schmuck he was in his life. You know, I mean, there's the barber of Fleet Street. I mean, there's like awful human beings that he gets you to empathize with. It's it's sort of kind of remarkable. I saw a uh, an interview after the Encores production with John Weidman and Stephen and Will Davis. And Stephen said that his first interest in it had been Hal Wilson uh, had been had squandered his talents, and had and Addie also had not lived up to his being. But his interest was in the squandering of the talents. And when he brought John Weidman in, he said that John said, "No, this is about brotherly love." When I read the book, what interested me was primarily Wilson's squandering of his talents. He had so many of them. And he just pissed them away. And that's what interested me, a guy with all these resources who squanders it. And when John read it, that wasn't what interested him. What interested him, John was the relationship between the brothers. So, uh, so, we start, so I'll let John take it from there. 
Yeah, I was, uh, Steve said read this book, and I read, and, and, and I did, and I, I mean, I was, in, I immediately felt as though he was looking at half the story, that this complicated, impacted relationship between these two very American guys, and this very, what struck me as a very American kind of relationship, that that's where the show was, um, uh, particularly since they were operating during a, a, a period in American history, which they seemed to reflect and which seemed to feed them as they, <laughs> made their lives, uh, you know, uh, for better or for worse, um, uh, as they careered across the country. I will say, I, I'll, and then we, and then, so we, you know, we're, we worked that back and forth and went to work. I will say, I remember when Steve first called me about this, it was, uh, it was, I guess, the late 90s, and he had finished Passion. Passion had been running for a while. You don't remember this, but he said, you know what, I just, I don't want to write another thing which is kind of gloomy and downbeat. <laughs> <laughs> something that's kind of optimistic and upbeat. <laughs> so I said, well, all right. So you've all seen the show now, so I <laughs> And that's when they started focusing more on the brotherly love and, and began to make that. But I don't think Stephen ever really let go of that idea, as you say, Michael, of failure. Right. And, and, and the con artist, as Chris said, uh, and... And to me, the, the song, The Game, that's a wonderful song in both versions, right. is kind of, kind of where Sondheim is. That's what he, where his interest is. It's in the game. Mm -hmm. It's in the doing of it. It's not yes. whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. Mm -hmm. Better than girls, better than booze, beating ace high with a pair of twos. Better than smoke drifts in your shoes, even if now and then you lose. Exactly. The thing that really matters is the game. It's more than just the winning, it's the game. That moment when the card is turned and nothing is the same. The only thing that matters is the game. It's remarkable how each of the the iterations and his initial thoughts that well, Wilson is the colorful character. He's you know the your your Harold Hill you know charming yeah. con man. In the early editions, that was the focal character with Addison being presumed to be well. That's the, and then he's he's not as interesting, so he'll be the side character and bring him in. And then by the time they got to Bounce, had made them a little bit more equal. And then by the time they got to Roadshow, Addison had really, they're, as they're putting it in front of audiences, and it's the, it's the thing we always discover. We can have an incredible reading of a show in a rehearsal room, or watch something with just a very closed reading of a show. But until you put it in front of that audience, and they tell you what they're interested in. Do you realize, oh, this is, you know, we need the character who is going to be, who's going to get us into the show, which is the one who has some, a little bit sense of normalcy, almost to the sense of being, as the mother says, you know, the more boring of the two boys. That's, that's our lens, you know, to get in because the other brother is so overwhelming in terms of his personality. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, I think in over the course of its iterations, it it figured out better the paradox that the, the the truth the key to the show for me was the the paradoxes involved. Like it's like that idea that every artist says, um, and every journalist, I might add, how much do I self promote? You know, do I go on Facebook and tell myself? Do I not? And uh, and I think most of us like to think that if we if we actually are any good then our talent will out, you know? Mm -hmm. But in reality, we all know that that's not really true anymore. Right. And so right. you, you end up with this sort of dichotomy between, you know, hucksterism and actual, actual talent. And, and I think that's, that, that sort of contrast in the show is what it's really about that, you know, and I think you can extend that, you know, to any area of American life, really. The, you know, look at our political debates. They're all around that at the moment. You know, this idea of, of, of uh, salesmanship versus actual worth, you know, and, and I think 
it, that's the, the, the show is about show business, I think, as I said, but I think also it's about that broader, it, it's about what fuels American creativity, really, when you really look at it. You know, what fuels creativity in this nation? And a lot of it is a combination of these two things. People who are really good and people who can really sell themselves. And sometimes they're the same person and sometimes right. they're not. And you sort of end up with this, you know, this show kind of, for me, really gets to that better than any right. other show that he ever wrote. And after all of the iterations, he still says, and he brought it up at different points of time in the journey, that he still wishes the show had been called Get Rich Quick. That mm. he, he doesn't think Roadshow is the ideal, that it doesn't exactly say what he no. wants it to say. No, he's right he, about that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, get rich quick as a nice exclamation point at the, at the end of it. Well, they're both of, I'm sorry. No, go right ahead. Both Weidman and Sondheim are both very interested in the political uh, area of, of the world and look at their other shows together, Pacific Overtures and Assassins, very political. And the idea of capitalism and American ingenuity and get it, you know, uh, and and they have a mixed feeling about that. They they admire it in a way. The enthusiasm in the numbers of from Bounce, especially when they were trying to make it less heavy. When 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 Sondheim said he wanted to do something light for a change and they made it about resilience. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. On my way, at sea but far from wreck, I went astray, as who doesn't now and then. But on my way, I've acquired some self-respect, plus an old stone jug and a fuckier's rug, a chandelier that's a bitch to lug, and a rat hand stool and a coconut, and a whatnot which wasn't worth it, but I'm on my way again. The energy, the breakneck pace of that thing, especially dur during the uh, I Love This Town uh, about New York yeah. sequence and the Boca Raton sequence, they moved like wildfire. And there was the Contestoga wagon and there was, you know, and, and, and at first, and maybe when you saw it, Michael, we hadn't quite figured out the, uh, changes from scene to scene so that they were, went fast enough. Right. Because once you got in there, it was breakneck speed and it was right. like American, like the land boom running away with itself to mm -hmm. where it just over inflates mm -hmm. or like 2008 or mm -hmm. 2007. Mm -hmm. uh, when we just go, go for something that's not quite legal and not yeah. quite right and right. It, it all collapses. He talked about, to, to your point exactly, Deanna, that he had proposed or was kicking around. He wanted something physical on the set, like either a thermometer or he described a, a, a balloon that would, that would keep growing over the course of the evening that would eventually burst. And, and, and Hal Prince didn't pick up on the, on the suggestion or, or, or decide to go with it. But to your point of how, how sort of breakneck speed bounce was, it was even a bit of a come down from what the original idea of Wise Guys was, which was even more musical comedy, more vaudeville, that it was vaudeville, frankly. Right. It's the vaudeville right. show, but he was concerned about the metaphor of vaudeville with things like Chicago or other shows being a bit tired as a concept. Um, but it's interesting that what you're talking about being so breakneck was actually bringing it down a little bit. And then to, to where we eventually go with, with Roadshow, um, even zeroing into something less musical comedy and silly and a, a lot more thoughtful and even profound. Which is beautiful. I mean, some of, the, some of the songs I feel like in Roadshow are, are the most beautiful melodies that he's created ever. I mean, it, it's really a gorgeous score. Mm -hmm. It is, it is, it totally is. That is and so correct. Underappreciated, it's underappreciated. Michael, did you, when you received the, the, the show from what had been the John Doyle treatment, 
right. or his approach. Did you find that that his hand, John Doyle's hand, did you you sense that that you that it was all over the piece, or did you find something that you, as a music director, with Gary's collaboration, were able to easily make your own? I think that we uh, we certainly were in conversation with John Doyle's production. You know, we we I hadn't seen it, but Gary had seen it, and it was sort of in our minds that that was that was his sort of iteration of this and and our task was always to do our version you know so uh, we there were there were certainly things that we we sort of decided to go away from you know some of the like money stuff in the air and all that kind of thing and 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 you know he tried to do something else but um but but you know i, I feel like every director who, who who takes on a sondheim show has to sort of there's just so much there. It's, they're so rich and redolent uh, with with meaning and metaphor and 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 ideas that you sort of have no choice but to at least shine a light a little bit more on certain things and a little less on other things. And you just can only, I imagine, be guided by your own directorial eye and and feeling. One of the things, you know, in regard to John Doyle, um, that Sondheim says that he feels is that his not being American gave an insight to the piece as this very outside eye that really helped them focus it um, in some ways at the point of which he received the material and, and even had an incident where he, he had asked Weidman and Sondheim for permission to go, let me take the material. I'm going to go away and reshape it, which Sondheim admitted was, was a little shocking that you would sure. say you're, you don't, you're going to reshape the writer's material without the writer's participation. And then when he came back, they, they were very excited by what he came back with. Chris, do you think that that any, that, that there's any, that there's weight in that in in his in his distance from the American experiment and the sort of American dream uh, being able to look at it in that through those eyes it was especially helpful I, I think that's probably true. I know that uh, Mr. Sondheim likes John Doyle a lot uh, and or you know has from the moment he sort of came on the scene. I think, um, and I think John Doyle is a very good director, and I, uh, I, I, you know, I thought his company was very good too, and I thought uh, he, what he did with this show is probably true. He, he did. I, I would do a shout out too to Gary Griffin, who uh, I actually think if I was, you know, writing a book on Gary Griffin and talking about his best shows, this is probably the one that I'd say was his best show of his career. He's done many fine shows, including our lovely friends on this on this zoom have been involved with them but but this is a very this was a very very good piece of direction i thought um in in part because he found the truth in the piece you know that it had always been with hal hal's production had been interested in very big themes and you know and that's not entirely fair to blame hal for anything because the material was evolving as diana has been talking about but I think by the time Gary got a hold of it for that that production here at Chicago Shakespeare, and I, you know, I do see, say this as someone who saw them all, it, it found things that none of the others did, and and it did it I think because they were just you know Michael Lindner who was in the cast was very good in it I thought, and and it, it yeah. created he played a regular guy, and so he was very relatable, and and I think the show became about truths. Was it as you know, grand version as Hal's version? No, it wasn't. And there were things about Hal's version that were never repeated. I mean, Dana spoke to that incredibly well. I mean, there, there were things in that production that were amazing. 
amazing that none of the other productions could ever get close to. But sort of the core of it, as the material evolved, that by the time it got to that one that Michael was involved in, it, it, it found a sort of a, I don't know, a unity, a truth, I don't know, a human, humanity, because it wanted to be something smaller, I think, ultimately, the material. Well, and I think, and I think what you've said about it being the most personal shows of Sondheim's canon, I think is very true. And I think that was Gary's guiding star in our work. I mean, he, I feel like of any of the directors I've worked with, I feel like he's the one with the most sort of clear, direct, like mind meld with Sondheim. Uh, he's just spent so much of his career, uh, you know, in relationship to that work. And, and I think he knew in approaching Roadshow that it was a very, very personal show for Stephen. And, and he let that inform, you know, how he worked on it and all how all of us worked on it. Yeah. I find it interesting that, um, and as you know, I mean, it, it turns up in Roadshow, but there is a, there's a piece that began its life in Assassins. Uh, as another national anthem. And if you know Assassins, you immediately recognize the tune. And there are other occasions within the show that he says for the first time, no, we hear about how he was not happy to hear that Julie Stein had snuck in a trunk song into Gypsy, that after he wrote the lyrics, he was like, had I known that that was a song that somebody else already said a lyric to, I never would have done it. And Julie Stein's, what the heck, you know? But that this is the one show that he really felt that um, it was okay. He resolved himself to go, here was other material that I wrote that I think could work in this. And while I sort of promised myself artistically I would never do that, I'm okay. I'm okay with it at this late date. Um, sure. And he and 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 I find it so brave that he attributes it to just the small little kernel of maybe questioning. I wonder if I still have the faculty to think up one more song or. or you know, what is happening at this point in my career and potentially my last full length show that I'm okay with drawing on other material that I've, that I've done. Deanna, did you sense that when you were dealing with him, a sense of accumulation of, of a career at, at that point when you were working on it of Here's somebody who I get who's written, who's done a lot of work. Well, yes, uh, obviously. Uh, as, the, as the songs kept reshaping themselves and as they have done, as I know you all know, uh, they have come back. He's used pieces of, it, even the, the, what, the song you just talked about, the father's song at the beginning, uh, what's the name of it? Um, I, it's in uh, your hand. It's in, there you go, it's in your hand, which used to be Opportunity and Bounce, which was a comic song, and this is not at all. This is um, a march and sort of a passing on the baton. Uh, but he used that then again, later in the show, right, Michael? When yeah. he used to... <laughs> He brought it back. Yeah, he comes back at the very end when both of the brothers are dead. <laughs> right. Says, oh, boys. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but he kept doing that with you and you are the best thing, Boca Raton. He had a bunch of themes where he, he would, it was like a leitmotif and he would bring it, bring him back. He would put them in different ways. He would shuffle it around. It was also interesting that Sometimes when he would sit out there in the audience in the dark, I would see him, because I wasn't in some of the biggest numbers, I would see him moving his lips with the lyrics, just like uh, I've seen playwrights do that sometimes in readings. And he 
he was so immersed and intense in what he was doing. He was so focused. I think that was one of the reasons that a lot of people thought that he was not very pleasant and why maybe I was frightened of him. Mm -hmm. That he was just so always in the music and trying to figure it out. He was playing the game, as I said before. He's in the game of creating. Uh, I don't know whether this will be redone, but Raul Esparza, after talking to me about the changes they made in the uh, Encores version, that he thought there was some enthusiasm for that maybe going on. Uh, they certainly did a lot of things differently. They framed it as a radio show. They had a, a huge red curtain, and a beautiful show curtain, typical show curtain that ca came apart. And then they had big ra old radio mics. And uh, that was the frame of that one. Uh, and then one of the things that he told me about that was I thought really interesting is when mama was dying, he had, Will had, Will Davis, the director, had Wilson standing behind her smoking a cigarette while Addie was at her bedside. Um, and when uh, the Boca Raton sequence happened, they had model houses, which they walked out with all lit up inside. And there were mylar curtains and it was just a glorious thing. And then it, everything collapsed everything right. crashed apart yeah i actually saw that i saw that production too oh, and it was, it, I, I did i saw it and it it, it was a deacon it was the opposite of the one that, that that michael and gary worked on it was that one was all about the emotion and the heart of the brothers and this one was sort of a, a deconstruction of american capitalism really <laughs> but it was very very good i mean it was very good you're right about the little mini houses and the it was a very there was something, you know, it was, I don't know, I, I, I think there should be a Broadway, a full Broadway production of this still. I, I still think that. I, and I think somebody will do it. it. And I think, I just think people haven't realized how central to, to Sondheim it is. I just think most, because of its history, people haven't really put it together in the, in the, in the right way. And he does say that after so many can, I mean, you know, they kept changing the name to avoid recognition with the previous version or opinion of the previous version, which is why they kept feeling that it was important to, to give it another name. And he wonders if maybe in some ways, because there's always been a close but no cigar response to every iteration of it, that it will forever have that. And I, I don't agree. I think you're probably very right, Chris, because I think Assassins suffered that for many years. It was felt right. to be, it's okay, it's not great. And now Assassins is considered just top drawer for exactly what it is. Uh, and it can certainly be rethought in many ways, but... Yeah, I mean, that was what Frank Rich always said about Assassins, it doesn't quite work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, that was what he originally said. And, and I think that's wrong now and i think he wouldn't say that now either but that was definitely the view of that for quite a right. while which which well may have to do with our understanding that this was this is a late career creation that is that is so much richer and and dense and complex and informative and informed of a life of a genius went into this uh, the guy who wrote do I hear a waltz couldn't have remotely begun to approach this, which is why it never happened when he was excited about it as a young guy. An older right. man needed to write this show. Right. And that's someone who'd experienced, like you said, who knows who knew what failure felt like. Go! Nuggets this thick. Go, go! The Dawson City boy, it isn't very pretty, but it's get rich Addison Wilson Meisner were these really colorful men, fascinating, very different, and I think very much about the American character. This was a, a, a passion of Sondheim's going back to the 50s, and David Marrick, who was a famous producer, was looking at doing it with Irving Berlin writing a score and Bob Hope playing Addison Meisner. So Sondheim went, oh, well, I'll never get it from him. Sondheim then started to pursue it again in the early 90s. 
you know, th this show has had a really difficult history. And I thought, I have to know that if he has put this much of his life into pursuing this piece, it's worth doing. When I did it in Chicago, the hope was that we would reveal as much that was powerful in the piece as we were able to. Honestly, I could not have imagined that we would get to have the next home for it here. People come here knowing they trust the way Signature is going to handle Sondheim's material. And Sondheim trusts the way Signature is going to handle his material. So I feel like let's give this show another air and let's find what's in there. I really think Roadshow is about your mission and your family and how those things intersect. I like to uh, wrap these up with um, just a question of, of if someone was going to see, and let's say for Deanna, it's going to be Bound since that's the show that you, you know more okay. than any of us here. Um, and Michael for, for Roadshow and Chris for whichever one you want. They're go you know somebody who's about to go to the theater and see a production of this. Your response to that is what? They're going to experience what? Oh my gosh, you're going to see that? This is what you're going to experience. You're gonna see a show that takes you all the way from, you'll never make your fortune just by sitting on the porch and looking wistful when oh. there are nuggets by the fistful. <laughs> And then take you to, you don't want me to go. I mean, it, 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 it'll like, it'll make you think and it'll make you feel and, and it'll take you on an incredible journey. That's wonderful. Well, I would say the, it, it, to quote Gary Griffin about Follies, he said, and I am paraphrasing, but I thought it was so right. He said, don't try to make it anything, just wait and let it come to you and you will be rewarded. Mm -hmm. He said that about Follies. And when he said that, I thought, I feel the same way about this show. And I would say, particularly about Bounce, that go prepared to be joyful because it is a the music will 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 lighten you <laughs> it's just you're going to experience music that only sondheim can bring you mm -hmm. and it's some of his best music if you just wait and let it come to you and Chris. I'll second all of that. Uh, I think that's exactly right. And I, I would say that it, this show is probably the most interesting window into the greatest figure of the American theater. Uh, and that it, it, it's sort of relative obscurity should not, uh, you know, get in the way of you knowing that because it, it really is. And it's, it's also one of the best shows about the power of love and how love can arrive at any time, at any point in one's life and what it can do for you. So it's ultimately about transformation uh, as all of sometimes great shows are. But this one is the most personal. I really think that. I think it is the most revealing of him. And that I don't think, frankly, while he's still alive and long may, be, long may he be with us, we won't understand that until probably decades from now. And then I think people will go, oh, this is what this, is what this show had to say about him. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what he revealed only in this show. And then I think everyone will be compelled by it all over again. Mm -hmm. It took him his entire awesome. career to get it, to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> Not there. Thank you so much for joining me and talking about Roadshow and Bounce and Wise Guys. It's delightful to see you all. Thanks everybody. <laughs> you it's really good to Thank see you. you. Thank you. Have a good one.